Hello and welcome to Pitch Masters, the show that aims to uncover and share everything that there is to know about the art and science of pitching. I'm your host, Danny Fontaine, and in this episode, I speak to former CEO of Kin and Carter, Jay Schwann. We have an incredibly candid talk about what being a CEO really involves. We discuss red and blue oceans, pitching to investors, choosing the right clients for your business, the importance of having a great mentor, and using the story from the movie 300 to motivate a team to success. Grab a coffee, sit back, and enjoy the show. Jay Schwann, what an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Great to see you. I'd like to ask, to kick us off, for you to give yourself a bit of an introduction. Danny, good to see you. Uh, Congrats on the podcast. I've enjoyed listening to it and very happy to be here with you. Quick introduction. So I um, I live here in Chicago. I've been in um, career-wise, I've been in the tech services industry my entire career, you know, from, from a role as a, as a software engineer where I started to entrepreneur and, um, and, and CEO and eventually a public company CEO and now kind of starting a second chapter. Happily married, got five kids, two ridiculously large dogs, a house that's uh, uh, just a little bit on the, the right side of controlled chaos. Um, but uh, all, all is good. All is good. Fantastic. And, and you're very humble as well. I've always thought that about you. You know, you just throw in there, oh, yeah, and I was a CEO for a little bit. You were a CEO of a pretty big company. Tell us about that. Um, well, I guess the, yeah, the, the kind of the last chapter, I was the CEO of Kin and Carta, which is roughly 200, or excuse me, 2000 person digital transformation consultancy. So we, we kind of focus primarily in building software, bespoke software for companies and, you know, helping them move, uh, bespoke mission critical software to the cloud. And that, uh, that was a publicly traded company on the London stock exchange. So, um, I spent, you know, the I guess the last four years um, building and growing that company, and uh, it was it was a great experience. And and before that, um, I had started a boutique software engineering consultancy called Solstice here in Chicago, uh, and scaled that um, to roughly 400 people um, before selling it to what ultimately would become Kin and Carta. So essentially, sold it to a company. And then became the CEO of that parent company, and, and we built Kin and Carta. And we can we can kind of talk about um, a lot of those details and lessons learned. But it was a it was great to be able to sit in the seat of startup entrepreneur, like scale up entrepreneur, and then public company CEO. I kind of saw a lot of different sides of these different capital structures and the different you know. Um, demands on a CEO's time and, and uh, you know, how those responsibilities shifted. And it's just gave me a, a great appreciation for the entrepreneurial journey. I just, I just love uh, hearing people's stories about it. I love um, hearing about the challenges. I can almost always empathize, you know, having been in the chair for almost 25 years, you know, I, I, I kind of I feel the pains and the joys when people talk about it. And so now, now I'm really trying to move into that next chapter where I'm just giving back and, you know, coaching and investing in startup tech services founders and helping them um, with their journeys. Let's talk about being a CEO for a minute, because I guess in theory, anyone can be a CEO. You just start a company with one person and you're the CEO and founder and that's all good. But being a CEO of a company on the FTSE, for example, is a different kettle of fish, something that most of us will never experience, something that probably fills a lot of people with dread. But if I was to sort of pull back the curtain a little bit, what does a CEO really do of a company of that size? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, the, the responsibilities shift a lot as a company scales. And, you know, when it, when it gets to that point and you're publicly traded, it's... Um, you know, the stakeholders shift. And so normally as a CEO, you kind of think about your main stakeholders as, um, as your clients and your employees. And that, that remains to be true. I mean, ultimately, those are the, 
those are the stakeholders that are going to make you successful. But um, as a public company CEO, you kind of get stakeholders like your public investors, your institutional investors, the people that buy the stock and ultimately determine how much it's worth and how much the company's worth, which has a lot of rippling effects on how people are incentivized at the business and, and you know, and, and how, how the company's viewed. You know, there's there's regulatory uh, bodies that you you ultimately are, are a stakeholder to. And, um, and then just, you know, general kind of public persona and media and those sorts of things. So, it kind of broadens a little bit, and um, and so then the focus kind of broadens a little bit, and then you know who who how you're serving the company changes, and what it ultimately means, I think, from a responsibility standpoint, is you've got to just be uh, absolutely sure you've got the right people in the right seats um, from an executive team standpoint, and the people that are actually operating the business day to day, because as as you kind of move into that seat, it's it's you have less time to be able to kind of help influence some of the, the the decisions, and arguably you shouldn't have to. I mean, arguably you want to have leaders that you that you respect and that you uh, are comfortable holding accountable, and that you know you're you're there to kind of coach and guide and support, but ultimately they own you know whatever portion of the business they're responsible for. So, um, so getting the right butts in the right seats is like job one. And then if you've got that, then you can do all these other things, you know, hopefully uh, effectively. And what are the other things then? So you've got this great team around you so that, you know, you know, finance is under control and, you know, everything you're doing is legal and compliant. What do you do then? Do you sit behind a big desk and direct? <laughs> oh, if it, would, it would only be that easy, Danny. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I think different people have different philosophies um, and there's, you know, a scale of like how operationally involved the CEO gets in the business. Right. And so different leaders will take different approaches to that. I have always been under the mindset that um, I'm going to create an organizational structure that that's distributed and that allows decisions to be made as close to the ground as possible, where they, you know, where they actually have the most influence. And you need to have, you know, some sort of oversight function or executive team that that is is looking at that and making sure that, you know, that nothing's going off the rails. But for me, what it ultimately means is like I just kind of look for where the constraint of the business is, you know, from mm. from an operational standpoint, because there's always a constraint, you know, it's just. I'm an engineer, believe in the systems of constraints, you know, you know, there's always a constraint that's governing the growth of the system. And, and in tech and services companies, you know, tech services, agencies, consultancies, it's usually either sales, uh, it's talent, um, or it's, it's something operational. And so, you know, depending on the region and depending on that constraint, I won't swoop in to try to solve the problem, but I'll make sure that whoever is responsible for that area has all of the support of the business that they need to be able to remove that constraint or, or, or work through it. And, you know, my leadership philosophy is to make sure that, that the rest of the team understands, always understands where the constraint is. And then they've got two jobs, whatever their job is. And then also to help the person that's responsible for that constraint. That's their other job. And so I think, you know, that, that to me has always worked well. I think it scales well. And it also continues to give those people that are responsible for the areas, like they're still in control, they're still accountable. Now they just got some added support and maybe a little bit of, uh, a little bit of um, you know, extra, extra, extra initiative to kind of get, you know, okay, we got to get through this so we can get, <laughs> so Jay stops asking us questions and, you know, it is out of our, out of our house for a little bit. But um but at the end of the day, that you know, the company has to be able to run itself. It can't. It can't rely on one person uh, to 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 do to do everything. Did you have when they asked you when Sent Ive said we want you to be the CEO? Did you have any kind of imposter syndrome at that point? Hundred um, percent. It was funny. Yeah. So just to kind of give the quick backstory, um, Solstice, the firm that I founded and scaled, I. Uh, I sold it to a, a, a British listed company that was at the time called St. Ives. St. Ives was going through its own transformation. It, it was historically a printing company and uh, printed all the Harry Potter books and a bunch of magazines and promotional materials, like like pretty 
well-known uh, global printer. But they had gone started a journey a few years prior where they're like, okay, print is in the future for us. We're going to start selling all these printing companies. And we're going to start buying consultancies and agencies and, you know, with a digital kind of tilt uh, in terms of their focus. So we were their first U.S. acquisition and they bought about um, 10 other firms and they sold like all the print stuff. This all kind of happened like right as um, w- when our firm got bought and then kind of like the tail end of our, our earn out, they had kind of my predecessor had kind of finished selling all the print stuff and we, we had these this basket of companies. So um, just ironically, when, when kind of our earnout completed in 2018, my predecessor, Matt Armitage, made the decision that he was going to step down as CEO. And the board tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you be interested in taking this job? And so, and my first immediate reaction was, no, like <laughs> I don't know anything about running a publicly traded company. Um it was clear I needed to move to London in order to, to, to do the job effectively. Um, it was completely out of my comfort zone. But on the same sense, I was also kind of feeling lost. Like, okay, I just finished this earnout. It was successful. We had a great successful run. I'm like, what am I going to do next? And so I was really at this crossroads. And so I went and talked to my wife about it. I'm like, you never believe this conversation I had with the chairman today asked if I'd be interested in the CEO job, CEO job and move to London. Like, could you believe that? And she's like, yeah, like, let's go. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, really? She, and she was like, yeah, this is like exactly what you need. Like, it'd be a great experience for the family. Like, we absolutely should do this. And it was really her conviction that's that convinced me that, like, one, I could do it. And two, I should do it. And um, and because, I, you know, just whenever you take those leaps, it just really helps to have that partner and that support system. And I've always looked at my career as like shared with her. Like she's just been, she gave up her career as an optometrist, you know, so she could help raise our kids and just like um, do like everything, <laughs> frankly. I mean, not that I'm not involved, but she's just a champion at just managing, managing our, our family. And so, so I could focus on, you know, growing the business. Um, and so anyway, her support definitely helped me take that leap. But then getting over there, uh, you know, and diving in and, you know, the first thing they did was just kind of saddle me with all these advisors, all these. Okay. All these advisors. And I'm just like, and then, you know, you start getting like different messages and suggestions from these different people. And, and, you know, I, I, I swear like a year in, I'm just looking at these, at these guys going, <laughs> they don't know what the hell they're talking about. I mean, it's like, it's like, not that they're like not coming from a well-meaning place, but you know, none of them sat in the seat that I was sitting in and before, and, and they all had their own agendas in terms of what they wanted to see happen and why. And so, you know, I kind of, once I kind of figured out the, the game and, you know, just like everything else, it's a game. I'm like, you know, this isn't that complicated in some ways it was like these guys jobs to make it more complicated than it was. So, so, you know, after removing a lot of that noise, um, it definitely got a lot easier, you know, and then it was just me and my team um, doing the work that we knew we needed to do and telling the story the way that we knew it needed to be told. And, and, and things definitely got, got easier from that point forward. What, what was that? What was the hardest thing do you think? Well, you know, for, for this particular journey, um, what I didn't know when I took the job is, you know, I inherited this portfolio of businesses, basically. It was, you know, 11 different companies that had been purchased over the course of six or seven years. And um, and when I got in there and started to look at every, look at them all, you know, basically nine of them were shrinking or losing money. <laughs> Mm. Um, and two of them were, were doing pretty well. Um, so Solstice, the company that I came from was doing well. And then another, uh, similar kind of software engineering consultancy was, was doing well, but the other nine were, were not. And really of those nine, like seven of them were not fit for what, what ultimately I felt that firm should turn into, which, which is Ken and Carta, which is a pure play kind of, you know, digital engineering consultancy. So, that meant that we had to kind of look at those seven companies, figure out how to restructure them in a way that would allow them to start growing so we could just sell them, like just rebuild them just so we could get rid of them. 
um, because they weren't necessarily part of the future and no one's going to buy, you know, a services company that's shrinking and definitely no one's going to buy a service company that's losing money. So that like, so it, taking the, you know, the four firms that we, we knew were part of the future and integrating those and, you know, restructuring and selling the other seven, like, I think if I had more experience, I, I probably would have never taken on that challenge. <laughs> but like my, you know, ignorance and like, um, you know, I don't know, just like entrepreneurial, maybe it's a little bit of ego, I, you know, it was just like, we can do this. And so, you know, I laid down the strategy and got buy-in from, from, Oh, you know, I wouldn't say everyone because you know a lot of a lot of a lot of it meant some of these firms weren't were necessarily part of the future. But from all the folks that really mattered in terms of going, you know, the go forward plan. But it was tough. I mean, it was tough. Uh, it was a big undertaking to get to get those businesses where they needed to be, and then integrate the other ones. But we did it, and and so it was a slog for I would say two almost two years of you know, just a lot of kind of in-depth, in-depth work to kind of figure out what each business needed uh, and then uh, what our go-forward business strategy needed to be. And so I wasn't in a position at that point where I could just be like, let me know how it's going, you know, like, where's the constraint? The constraints were everywhere, you know, across every, every business. So I was in a lot of the details. And so it was tough. You know, I was, I was definitely um, just, I was worn down by, by the, by the end of it, but we got through it and I'm so glad we did it because one of the reasons I took the job was I was a little concerned about the future of the company. And I'm like, man, I built, I felt like I built this great business with these great people. And then we sold it. And now I'm not really confident that it's in the right place for the future. And so once we got through that, I was really felt right, really good about the future. So anyway, long-winded answer, um, but that was probably the most difficult time. And if serendipitously someone's listening to this and they've got offered a role as CEO and they're thinking, yeah, I think I might take it, <clears throat> what, what advice would you give them? You've got to be really clear what you're walking into and make sure you're up for whatever that challenge is. Because I really thought that I was walking into a growth and scale you know, opportunity. Like, okay, things are going great. I'm going to move to this seat and then have more control to make things even more great. Um, what I didn't realize that it was, it was really a turnaround job. Um, and a turnaround job, you know, it means, it means restructuring businesses. It means laying people off. It means all the things that I had never done, never wanted to do, you know, just wasn't part of my DNA. You know, I'm just not like, a. there's people that, are just really good and like at just doing that, you know, going in, restructuring businesses, leaning them down, getting them, you know, whatever it is. I mean, and, and it's necessary. A lot of times like these firms needed it because it's like you're, if you're carrying too much weight and you can't move because you're just by the burden of the weight you're carrying, you're, you're done. I mean, so, so it's a job to be done. And I think you just need to be really clear on what that job to be done is. Once I took it, I knew, okay, well, I got to do this job because I took the job and now I need to get it to the point where it's the job that I actually wanted. So we need to get through all that. And then we did. And then the last few years, it was great. You're growing 30, 40% and it was just, you know, we're just humming and, and, um, you know, you could just watch the employee engagement scores start taking off as, as, you know, the firm kind of found its footing and, and started to do what it was meant to do. So all of that was very rewarding, but I would just say whoever's taken, you know, when you're walking into a CEO job, usually, usually it's not a great situation because if it was, then the old CEO would still be running it. <laughs> right. I mean, unless it's some great planned, you know, um, succession, you know, of someone retiring or something, but usually there's, there's some work to do and you should just be really clear on what that is. And I'm guessing that as much as the role is internally facing, it is externally facing as well. And you, you, you mentioned a minute ago that, you know, you spent time with your team to get that story right over the kind of months. Talk to me a little bit about that story and how you wrote it 
and who it was for. It was for everyone in terms of like, we needed to understand, we needed everyone to understand where we were going as a business um, and that the future was going to look very different than, than the present. And so, you know, the three main audiences from my perspective were employees first, um, clients second, and then investors. And it was very important to me that we were telling the same story to all three of those audiences. There was different proof points, maybe in different data that maybe they, those individual audiences would care about, but it needed to be consistent because we were coming from a po- point where St. Ives, which had been a listed company since the 80s, I mean, it had been around for a long time, but as it was going through this transition, um, you know, from as you know, from print into buying these consultancies and agencies, um, it was a really difficult time from a in, from a, a public listing standpoint, because, and I, I still you know I really admire my predecessor for having the guts to do this, because if he didn't, you know, who knows where this company would would have ended up. Hmm. But he basically said, okay, we're going to make this, you know, it's like, we're going to make this transition. We're going to buy these digital consultancies and agencies. We're going to sell this print stuff. And then the whole time he's got to report, you know, the earnings of the business, these, you know, to and, and forecast it out, you know, years in advance, you know, while you're completely changing it, which is not easy to do. In fact, it's impossible, you know? So it's like, it's like, you know, putting on a Broadway show and inviting everyone to the first week of rehearsals. Like, it's just ugly. Right. You know, it's just not going to look good. And it didn't, you know, it was like, it didn't look good. So by the time I took it over, the stock was in, you know, the stock was in the tank. The investor confidence was like, waned, had waned. I mean, it was almost to the point where it was like, kind of a joke. Because so many promises had been made and just, you know, and just could you know, we just, and we just couldn't, couldn't, um, fulfill them in the time period that ideally um, the investors wanted. So when I took over, you know, it was th- the main thing that I was dealing with from an investor standpoint was skepticism. And there was definitely that from the employees as well. But, you know, employees could be a little bit more optimistic, right? They're not going to stick around if they don't if they don't believe that, you know, where we're going makes sense. Now, whether or not they believe we can get there in the time period, we're seeing all that stuff. I mean, everyone's got to take that journey individually, but investors ultimately determine how much the company's worth. So I thought coming in, I'm like, you know what? We're going to put this vision together and put this deck together. We're going to go out there. And we're going to be like, we're going to be a digital transformation consultancy. <laughs> Look at these other digital transformation consultancies. Look at the multiples they're trading at. Look at this market. It's growing at 25% a year. Like, this is where we're going. Like, you know, isn't this great? And, you know, I was ru- rudely, not rudely, I was, I was very abruptly introduced to um, Brit- British realism. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> British realism is very different than, than, you know, uneducated American optimism, which I was used to. <laughs> so I'm thinking, hey, I'm going to tell the story and, and the stock's going to take off and we're going to have access to all the resources and the capital and the support to do, to do what we need to do. What we got was... Good idea. Like, show me that you can do it, and then I'll give you credit for it. And so, you know, nobody is 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 necessarily going to pay up for the stock, right? If if until they see that it's actually creating the earnings that it, it it's potentially good. At least no one no one in that market. Um, not with that. Not with the history either that we were carrying. So, what I didn't realize, and this kind of goes to like I think the pitch you know, the pitch master kind of parallel here is a big part of my job as CEO was, was pitching the business to investors. You know, every time we had a um, earnings release, which is twice a year, it, it was coupled with an investor roadshow where we would go and basically pitch the company to 30 plus different institutional investors or, you know, usually mutual funds. So the fund managers that run these mutual funds in hopes that they would be interested in then buying the stock. And, uh, you know, I learned pretty quickly, like, it's not that much different than pitching to clients. Right. <laughs> it really right. isn't. Um, you know, a lot of the principles are the same. A lot of like, you know, understanding who your audience is, understanding what they care about. When they ask you a question, 
trying to interpret what's the actual question that they're asking because it's never the question they're asking. It's the question behind the question that they're asking. You know, who are the different influencers within, you know, that that particular institution that, that determines if, if they make an investment, what's their typical timeline for making those investments? You know, how often do we need to get in touch with them to try to accelerate that timeline? I mean, a lot of these things were the, were the same. And so I appreciated kind of growing up and, you know, and, and, and like as a CEO, um, your number one job is selling. I mean, I, I, yeah. I firmly believe that. Um, just the audience changes over time. But investors were very much like that. So, so you know, we we had a lot to we had a lot of educating to do in terms of helping them understand what it what we were trying to become and what it was because a lot of them didn't even know or you know understand what a tech services company was, um, and then we had to convince them that we were going to get there, and um, and over time we did over time we did the register completely flipped from you know printing income based investors to growth investors and then the stock price kind of followed and and it was a successful outcome and i'm guessing your your pitch then which you you probably did many times over to these investors evolved over the years right over over a time period i wonder if you're able to put your finger on some of the things within that pitch that you know had a big impact yeah um so early on what I what I realized resonated the most with with these with these investors were were the case studies or the stories, and I didn't think that at first. I just had them in the back of the deck as like, oh yeah, and like you know we built this app for this company and it does these crazy things, and we built this software for this you know company and look at look at how it's improved their business. And what I found in the conversations that I was having with them is that were the, those were the things that they were actually most interested in because it helped them crystallize and understand what it is that we did, why it was important, and what the actual market opportunity was in like tangible examples. And so I went from market data and, you know, all these kind of like charts and graphs showing the industry and the sector and the growth and where we fit and all these things, and then kind of came back to like, okay, well, actually I'm going to spend most of my time just telling, I'm going to tell three or four stories and we're going to, we'll do the financial charts in the beginning and I'll have my CFO do that and he'll do those quickly. And I'm going to come in and tell three or four stories and they're great stories, you know, like mm. really interesting case studies. And all of a sudden then people started paying attention like, oh man, did you see what these guys did for John Deere? Did you guys see what these guys are, you know, doing for this bank and that bank? And like, that's crazy. Oh, I didn't know they built that. Like I use that, you know, it's like all of a sudden it started to become real to them. And that's when we started to get a lot of interest and requests for more meetings and those sorts of things, because the stories are just easier for people to pass along, you know. And what what were the most powerful stories? Was were they just the ones that had, you know, the biggest numbers attached to them, or did you find that there were stories that maybe were more emotional or had more of a human aspect? What was it? Do you think that made the stories themselves compelling? Yeah, it was, you know, it was the stories where there was like advanced technology at play making a, a, a big impact on a business. I mean, I think one of my favorite examples was the work that we were doing, continue to do with with a business called Corteva, which is a, a spin out of Dow DuPont. They do um, seed sales. So they just do, they sell seeds to farmers. Right. And they start an initiative that's like, you know, we want to build, we want, we want to own the software experience for the farmer. So they, they were, they commissioned us basically to help build a suite of tools that would help farmers, you know, predict the yields of their crops and, um, you know, and, and, and understand in real time what the health of the crops were. And we were doing like really cool stuff with like machine visioning and drones flying over the fields (laughs) and, you know, capture, you know, analyzing the images to determine like where, where, you know, they may need to put more fertilizer down or where things were maybe more crops were a little bit more dehydrated or, and then used all this to help them predict yields, which allowed them to like make better financial decisions, all these things that made a huge impact on their business. And then also like protected their seed sales. So it was like a great story. Cause it was like, wow, it was like super cool tech and some great engineering and design, but it was also like creating a new revenue stream for them. It like helped, it helped them differentiate their business on a strategic level, help them, help them be really a lot more successful. And so like when we could help 
our investors understand those stories and what what kind of impacts technology could have on these different companies if it's thought about in in that kind of product led way. Um, then they got they understood it. They got excited and they're like, oh yeah, well every company's got something like that. And it's like, yeah, every company needs to become a software company if they want to be successful. And then mm-hmm. it's like, oh wait, I get it now. Like okay. <laughs> And so those those stories, you know, which are, you know, same stories we're telling other clients and the same stories we're telling employees to get them excited to come work here, or get excited about the work that's going on in other parts of the business, They're all the same stories. Um, so that's that was the key is just making sure that message was consistent. And that's great if you've got the stories, right? If you've got the evidence and case studies. What about if we rewind in your career and we talk about the earlier days when you were starting out on your own and you were, well, I don't really know how it works. Were you pitching to clients and investors at the same time in parallel, or did you have to do one before the other? How did that work? And how did those pitches sound? Yeah. So I, I never took on money. Um, so I boot, I bootstrapped the business, which means that we never took any outside investment until we sold it. And that wasn't necessarily because, I was determined not to do that. I just didn't know how. Like I, you know, I was an engineer. I wasn't a finance guy. Like I didn't know how to raise money. I didn't think anyone would want to give me any money. Like, yeah. you know. So, but it, it, you know, in hindsight, it's great. I mean, it worked out better. That it maybe took a little longer than than probably other firms that take outside capital to scale. So, by no means am I opposed to that. But allowed us to stay in control for a lot longer. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of the most of the pitching was done was done to clients, and you know, I think you know, different points in time. We had a, you know, as the firm evolved, we had to kind of take different tactics. Um, one of the pivots that we made around 2009 was to focus purely on mobile. That was probably one of the bigger bets that we made that really paid off um, and helped the company scale. And so it was 2009, you know, the App Store had just launched. So the iPhone had been out for a little over a year. When the App Store launched, you know, we looked at them like, you know what, this is, this is going to be the future of how people actually mm-hmm. engage with software. And so we made the decision, you know what, we're going all in on mobile. And we had like, it was like 5% of our business at the time. Like we got to, we got to be different. We need to go, we're going all in on mobile. That's all we're going to do. And we didn't have a ton of case studies at the time because there just weren't a lot of case studies. Right. And so what we did was we're like, we need to become experts in the technology and the craft and we need to explain to our clients like how this stuff works. And by explaining to them how it works and by willing to train their, their people, um, we'll, be, we'll be looked at as the experts. And if and when they decide they're going to commission a project in this area, they're going to come to us first. And so that was really what we did. We said, okay, we're going to be the experts. We're going to put on classes. We're going to invite our clients to send their engineers to our classes and teach them how to code iPhone apps. We were doing our little side projects on the side and whatever little piddly like POCs that people were funding at the time. You know, we, we were getting all that work because we were the only ones doing it. Um, and then all of a sudden those projects got bigger because, you know, it became more important and the case studies got more expansive and more critical and more interesting. And then it kind of fed from there. And we had then we had the stories to tell. But I think, you know, it, when it comes to, you know, when you're when you're working for a firm, running a services firm, whatever it is, like you've got to be really clear on those points of differentiation. And I talk a lot about blue ocean and red ocean. I'm a big believer in kind of the, the blue ocean and red ocean markets. So for those people who may not have ever heard that expression, yeah. talk us through the basics of red ocean, blue ocean. It's, it's just like it sounds. So like blue ocean being, you know, relatively untapped market. Maybe it's a new market. It's an emerging market. There's not a lot of competition, you know, maybe not as many fish in the water, but like less people going after those fish. So it's, it's blue, it's open. There's a lot of white space. Red ocean is kind of the opposite. It's when things start getting commoditized, maybe it's still a big market. Maybe there's a lot of fish in it, but there's just tons of sharks. There's tons of competition. There's blood in the water because of all this competition happening. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of times companies will start in that blue ocean and use that to kind of define themselves. And then, you know, whatever that market is ultimately starts to become commoditized. I mean, if it's that good and interesting and growing, more people are going to come into it. It turns into a red ocean. And, you know, if you don't have a clear sense of differentiation in the red ocean, like you're dead. I mean, so what I, I always challenged us with was like, Every year, we're going to create a new service line in a blue ocean. You know, not all of them are going to go. 
you know, we're not going to get every bet right, but every year we're going to, we're going to do something in a blue ocean. And, and, you know, so what, you know, we did a, everything from like, we started an internet of things service line to um, we did a service line in robotics at one point, um, which was really fun, but then just market was not quite there yet. We did, uh, you know, we were one of the first to jump on voice and voice experiences, um, which turned into kind of the modern day kind of chatbot kind of experiences. Um, ultimately, we started kind of a cloud data uh, practice there. And, and so, and, and then our cloud modernization practice started there. But, you know, some of those bets, you know, have now become a majority of the firm's revenue. Some of them didn't go, go very far, but the point was like we were always fishing and we're always, you know, mining in the red oceans, sure, but always investing in a blue ocean area. So I assume you 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 knew that, it, you know, you weren't going to catch fish every time. You had a, what was it, 50-50 probability rating? What, what was the kind of success ratio of trying these completely new, untested things? I'd say probably half of them ended up going and are still there today is probably right. But the point was budgeting for it, right? So it's like a lot of services firms don't don't have an R and D budget, and when you don't have an R and D budget, you're just you know you're really you're not investing in the future. And so what ends up happening is you're just incrementally innovating in those areas you're playing in, but you're not you know you're not ever getting access to any blue ocean. So you know we're always good about making sure that we were carving out that investment which really dictates kind of those two, three year down the line, what does a firm look like? And, you know, and inevitably the same thing happened to mobile. I mean, mobile was, it was hot, man. We were one of the first ones there. You know, we took off with, with that wave, but, you know, fast forward four or five years later and it was bloody, you know, it mm-hmm. got, it, it was, you know, everybody was in it, you know, all the Accentures and the, you know, Cognizance and all these guys had their mobile practices built up and they had thousands and thousands of people doing this stuff. And, you know, we could still differentiate because of the great stories we had, but it was clear like, okay, we can't just like plan to hitch our cart to this forever and just think it's, it's always going to be there. So, you know, even when you hit one that like, that was like a lottery ticket, like it's not going to last forever. So how do you continue to differentiate when you're blue ocean turns red do you think it is you know your case studies and talking about your achievements that kind of thing or um yeah i mean i think there's there's different avenues as as it as it as it becomes more i don't even want to say commoditized because I, I think there's there's very few areas in tech services that are totally commoditized it's just more like mature you know mature it's a more mature market um, but I mean, you can, you can differentiate on sector expertise and clients really value that. Um, you know, so we were, we had five key sectors that we were focused on. And, and so we, we only marketed and sold to those five sectors cause, you know, we wanted to build up case studies that, you know, kind of fit into one of those five buckets, which made more compelling stories over time. And clients really value that sector expertise when you're in a mature market when it's an immature market, they value the craft. They value the skills, right? In a blue ocean, they just want people that know how to do this stuff so they can they can run some experiments and start understanding it themselves. When it's a red ocean, they really value understanding and how those use cases apply to their specific industry, to their specific business. So that's definitely one way to, to do it. You can continue to differentiate on craft. It just becomes harder. And so you have to be more bold in and how you're doing that, you know, whether it's your senior leaders writing books on it or putting conferences on that focus in those areas. I mean, uh, there's, you know, the partnerships that you ultimately form with outside kind of software companies or cloud companies um, and how you're viewed by those partners. Those are all ways to continue to differentiate, differentiate your business. But still, you know, at some point, you know, no one really I mean, I hate to say it, like no one cares about firms that implement SAP anymore. Like it's like, you know, they were every there, they're a high flying in the nineties and, and everybody wanted to work for one and everybody, you know, you couldn't, you know, everybody wanted to invest in all that stuff, but there's a point where the technology just, just wanes. Another thing in relation to all of that, which is a, is a favorite topic of mine, because I see people doing it wrong all the time. And, and something I know you talk about is, actually being picky with the customers you choose to 
pitch to and kind of allow to buy your services, right? It's not a case. Success isn't going after everything and trying to win everything. Right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I learned that lesson kind of part of that mobile wave. Like when, when we all of a sudden we became, you know, the mobile people that everybody was going to, then all of a sudden it was like, oh, wow, like we got all these people. And, you know, then you realize, wait, there's, there's good clients and bad clients. Right. And there's clients that we can actually build this business on top of. And there's clients that are, that we can't. And, and I think I'll give you our example of like, you know, where that, where that kind of evolved over time, but every business is different. So for example, like, you know, we decided to stop working for startups because, you know, startups would come in, um, would be super interesting, right? Cause it would always be a greenfield project that you're starting from scratch. You could use the latest tech, like all the engineers, designers love working on startup projects. And, you know, usually to have some very enthusiastic founder that, you know, would have this vision and it's compelling. And, and so, so they're, they're interesting projects and, you know, there's always money at the beginning to kind of get these things going. But, you know, as, as my guess, it's like, well, the future of those things are questionable. Like, are they going to make it? Do they get that next round of funding? Are they going to take off? Like you can't really easily rely on them unless you just have a constant funnel of them coming in. You just can't rely on them to, to build a business on top of like you could, uh, an enterprise, um, like in a larger, larger enterprise who typically, you know, projects maybe aren't quite as interesting, you know, you're dealing with some legacy technologies. It's like, whatever, but you can actually build a business on top of them. Um, but there's, you know, for us, like there was a size limit to that too. I mean, there, I remember there was, um, a point in time a few years ago that we got our East coast team got us into this huge global bank. And we were so excited because it was like one of these companies that spent billions on it every year you know so it was like the golden goose like oh my gosh like went through the the msa process took like the, the master services agreement process took like six months just to get a contract signed like that's how big it was but once you had that it's like oh man this is like charlie and the chocolate factory going in with the msa or da, da, da. go in there and you know we had an executive sponsor in there that was gonna hire us for the first project so obviously we had some work to do we get in there and there was a global consulting firm in there that had 45 people selling on that account. That's just all they did. Just selling that account. Just that account. Like a sales team of 45 people. Like that's how big this company was, right? It was distributors all over the world, all these different business units. And it was like, and I'm like, and we had like one person on the account. You know right. what I mean? It's like, look at this poor guy. And it's like, it is just like, oh my God, like where, where do I even start? And then you just realize there are companies that are too big. Yeah. Um, depending on your size and on our size. I and mean, we were relatively, you know, we were probably a thousand people at the time. It's like, still, it's like, it's, it's, you've got to figure out where that sweet spot is for you, where you could get access to the appropriate decision makers to understand where they're going, to hopefully help influence to some degree, to be able to co-solution these things together, you know, to be able to navigate across an organization. Like there is kind of a, a balance point there. And so we found that, right? We figured out what that, where that was for us. And then we figured out the sectors and then we were able to target, you know, companies at those size, at those sectors, these specific titles, typically hold these budgets and listen, you know, then we could put messaging together and all that account-based marketing, all that stuff. Um, but it took, a, it took, a, yeah, it took a while to figure that out. Yeah. Cause even with, you know, I've, I've heard, I've been involved as well in a couple of kind of David and Goliath pitches where I've been David and you can win them, but then you've got to be really careful about, can you deliver what you promised in the pitch afterwards? Yeah. If you're competing against such a, you know, someone who obviously can. Yeah. I mean, in, 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 um, I've seen that as well, like where you just get overwhelmed by their infrastructure, their processes, the bureaucracies, those sorts of things. And, and yeah, you've obviously got to be clear on the scope of what you're being asked to do and, and that you can do it. But yeah, I mean, I just think it's, that's an important part of any business's sales strategy is really being crystal clear on who that ideal client profile is. And then having a process for, if you do step outside of it, 
being very clear on why and then how that's going to be governed and monitored differently um, so it doesn't run away from you. And I've seen that. I've seen the, the downsides of, of, you know, not having that governance in place. You, you mentioned the Discover story yesterday. What's that one? Yeah. So that was a pivotal pitch for us. Um, and, and so this was one of those like early mobile days where we were just like tinkering around with all these pilot projects. You know, we're, we're building up capabilities. I think we got the firm to like 65 people, 50, 60 people around this time. And we got a, we got like a, a blind call in from the website. And we thought it was a joke. <laughs> so these, like, they normally are. <laughs> and it's like, you know, writing from, writing from, writing from Discover. We need, we need a partner to, uh, to help us rewrite our entire, you know, mobile, mobile suite of applications from the ground up. Cause they had put something out there and it was, it was one of those worst case scenarios where there's like, you know, I'm like, you know, mobile banking was one of the first things to actually go, like legitimate things in the app store to go from an enterprise perspective. And so they had like a couple million users and like one star reviews. Like it was really bad. Right. It was bad, bad, bad scene. So they were like, okay, well, let's do this right. So they reached out and said, we're interested in having you, you know, pitch to, to take on this whole mobile program. And I, I don't remember the exact amount, but it was like millions of dollars, and it, which was big for us at the time. Like it was big, big deal. And so, we uh, we put all hands on deck. It was like, okay, like if we get this, like it it is going to change the firm overnight. You know, like this was one of those things that was going to double the size of the firm overnight. You know, it was like the firm was small enough at the time where you can kind of fit everybody in one room. It was like this call came in. You might get tapped on the shoulder for something. Like you can't let whatever you're doing slip. But just understand that if we get this. It's going to be great for all of us, and here's what it means. And so, please, like, try to find the time to to help if you can. And so, everyone was excited. Like, all right, let's do it. And so we 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 got in there, and we like, and they they had their kind of IT team and the business team, and we had to sell them both because they were both stakeholders for it. And the so the IT team was like, we did all the craft stuff, right? And they loved it because they're like, oh my God, like, look, yeah, it's like clean code and like nice, all these, you know, nice mobile DevOps no one else was talking about. And it was like all these things that, and then the business side was just like, not, not impressed, um, not impressed. And, you know, they're sitting in our little office, you know, in the corner of the West Loop in Chicago and this loft building, you know, we had like this boardroom table with this like hand-me-down, like, you know, a terrible wood boardroom table and they're all sitting there. And I got the story later, like the, 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 the head of the business side was like texting the head of the IT side, like there's no chance that we're going to go with these guys. Like, like during our pitch, he's, he's writing wow. this. And the reason I know that by the way is later is because Obviously, we ended up. We'll, we'll kind of get to the story, but uh, he became one of our biggest advocates. I think he's gone on and working for other companies, and has brought us in, become a very good friend and a great advocate. So, but at the time, he was not impressed. Like we weren't, you know, we didn't have that business side pitch pitch down. But the the IT the IT side like went to bat for us and said, "Listen, I think these guys are exactly what we need." You know. They kind of stuck their neck out, so we'll make sure that it works. Uh, and so the business side kind of begrudgingly went along, and and we won half of the deal. And in the in 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 the half of the deal, basically what they said was, "We're going to let you rebuild the iPhone app. We're going to have our current vendor rebuild the Android app." And so they were like, they're kind of you know just like had a foot in both camps to like yeah you know not put all their eggs in one basket because we were small. I mean, you're fifty five people. This is a multi-billion dollar organization and this is a critical thing for them. And what sold it, what they, what they told us what sold it for them actually, like the, where we got half that deal. And, and I'll, I'll tell the second half of the story in a second, but um, they had, they brought us in for a final pitch and there were other boutiques that they were talking to that were kind of pitching at the same time. And the final meeting we went to their offices in Riverwoods and we brought the team that there was going to work on their account, every leader of every team. And so, and we had each person stand up, you know, and it was like, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll never forget. It was like our lead designer like stood up and, and, you know, it's just like, 
you know, my name's my name's Jess. I'm going to lead the design effort. I've done these things so far. This is what I envision for what we need to do here. Like, you know, she, she introduced herself in context of like, I'm going to be your person for design. I'm going to be your person for QA. I'm going to be your lead engineer. I am going to be your, you know, scrum master. I'm going to be your program. And they went around the table and discovered like looking at all these folks. They're all great people. I mean, we're all pretty young at the time, you know, but I mean, like clearly knew their shit. Clearly like were ready, clearly cared. And that's what they told us later is that's what won it. Like we came in, they're like, okay, this is the team. This is the team. If you, you know, if you, if you give it to us today, this is the team. And um, they're like, all right, let's go. And that's often what the bigger consultancies and agencies lack because they know they're either going to bring their A team to the pitch and then get them to go to the next pitch and the next pitch and sub them out, or they're going to offshore it or nearshore it. And yeah, well, you know, I, I think when you're small, like, the nimbleness and the agility and the control that you have are like your biggest assets, yeah. right? You don't have as many moving pieces so you can control them better and you got to use that, right? I mean, you've got to use that to your advantage. And so, and I'm in the room, right? I'm the CEO and I'm like, yeah, this is your team. Like there's no one else that's going to take them away from you. You know, like yeah. I am here telling you, this is your team. You can't do that when you're, you know, necessarily 60,000 and 100,000 people or do that as easily. Well, you mean you struggle to get the CEO in a room? I mean, there's not many right. pitches that Arvind will turn up for for IBM, for example. Yeah, it's Which yeah, is understandable, but yeah. Time in their day. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, but that's what got it. So, you know, so then fast forward. And so then they, then um, <laughs> the second half of that story was, I, I actually think was my favorite part. And that is, um, we started and and it didn't start off great. I mean, because we had to ramp the team quickly, you know, and we were small and we didn't necessarily like have our shit together for something at this scale. And so it was it was kind of like rickety and we were hiring all these and, and not, there weren't a lot of people out there that knew like how to build iPhone apps, you know, in, in you know, 2010 or whatever this was. So like it was you know, we're ramping people up, we're training people up, like all this stuff. And client came to us and was like, listen, I see the potential here, but it's not going great. You know, we're going to give you guys a milestone. And it was like three months away. And if you don't hit it, it's, it's going to be over. Like we can't, we can't just wait for you to, to grow up. Like, right. You know, kind of like laid the gauntlet down. Um, Gave the other team that we were competing against, you know, like the ones building the Android app, the same challenge, you know, to the, you know, to their credit. So they kind of, and I'll, the, the guy that did this is just brilliant. You know, the client that, that did this, I have a lot of respect for him. So he's, and he's still a close, close friend today, but I remember that. And it was like, oh, like, holy shit, this, this is really it. Like we got three months to figure this out. And if, you know, it was like, everything was riding on it. And we brought everyone back together. And I remember like we were all sitting in the same room together. And I did two things. One, I told, <laughs> I told the story of 300. You remember movie 300? Yeah. About, um, but it was like the, the Spartans against, um, against the Persians. And the, it, yeah, the, it was the Battle of Thermopylae. And, you know, I'll probably get the history a little bit wrong here. But the, the story was there was like this pass that that the Persian Empire needed to go through in order to get to Greece. And the Spartans went to go defend the pass with like 300. There was like 300 Spartans. And then, you know, the, the legend goes, there's like a, it's like a million man army in the Persian. So these 300 people, you know, held out this narrow pass and they held it off, held it off for a certain number of days or, or a week or whatever it was. But it was enough time so like Athens could come in and the Greeks could all get their stuff together and then ultimately ward off the the attack but these 300 people basically battled this million man army and, and won you know or at least won that battle enough that that ultimately the war was won and so i was like this is kind of what we're dealing with you know like we're this we're this little band of like you know 55 65 people and we've got this competitor that's hundreds of thousands of people and we're both tasked with doing the same thing and the only way we're going to win is if we have each other's backs because the spartans did this thing where they would like hold the shield in front of the person next to them so they could like then 
then like focus on using their spears and they kind of created this wall of shields and that's kind of how they held they held these guys off but it was all about like protecting the person next to them in order for them in order for them to kind of form this um you know this flanks or whatever they called it um, and so we talked about that. We talked about the principles of servant leadership and the fact that this was going to be really hard and there was going to be times where people were like really s- stressed and strained and we need to understand where they where they are and like help those people, get them through it. Like the same thing that we talked about with the constraints earlier. And as a team, like we were going to be able to do this, but only if we like stuck together. And so, uh, and around that same time, <laughs> there was a brilliant developer that we had hired that had pulled me aside and said, team's too green. They're never going to do it. He's like, but I think I could do this myself. I could build this whole thing myself. If you just let me work, work, work by myself at my house, heads down, I do nothing else. I will work 20 hours a day. I know I can do it. And he probably could, like he was that good. But I'm like, if we have him do that, then, and we might even get past this three months, but we're not going to have a firm. You know, we're not going to really have, we're not going to really have won anything. We'll be in the same place. And so, and, but his, his ultimatum was let me do it this way or I'm leaving because I don't think we can do it the other way. And so ultimately I told him, look, we're going to do it the right way. (laughs) And he left. (laughs) And then we did this, this meeting. And so we talked about the, you know, the, the, Therm- the Battle of Thermopylae. And then the other carrot I gave everyone was, and if we pull this off, we're all going to Mexico. <laughs> like all of us are going to go. I don't know when, I don't know when we're all going to go. <laughs> so that was the other like carrot, like, cause it's going to suck. I know it's going to suck. And um, man, the team did it. Like they've, they fricking nailed it. Like absolutely nailed it. Um, and it was one of the highlights of my career, just watching these people come together and the leaders that kind of emerged out of that group, many of which are still leading the firm today. Um, you know, now that it's 2000 people and we crushed it and that, that client, you know, we're doing almost 20 to 50 times as much revenue with them today as we were in that first project. So like it's, it's just grown into this great story that started with a pitch but really was about, you know, a firm growing up in the face of uh, an, an incredible challenge. And I'll always thank the client for allowing us that opportunity. Always. What a great story. That is so <laughs> going to be a video highlight. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it was the best, man. That was like that was one of my favorite moments of, yeah, for sure. But also classic you being humble. You played a big role in that. Like, it's it's difficult to be in that leadership position and, and say no to the guy who says, I've got the answer for you. I've got it. It's in my hand. And you still say no. That's, that's, yeah. that's courage. It, 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 it was. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to, you know, the effort that everyone on that team had to go through to get that done was, um, you know, that decision paled in comparison to what ultimately they had to do, but, but yeah, I was one of those moments where I felt like, thank God we made, we did the right thing, you know, cause it, it, those are defining moments for, for companies and companies have defining moments just like teams do and, and, and just like families do and, and like all, all of us as individuals do. So it was great um, having to go through that. And what's interesting too, and I used to have this ritual where I would sit down with everyone on, we would like do like a birthday lunch for everyone that had a birthday that week. And we would kind of like just all have lunch together and tell stories and stuff. And one of the questions I would ask everyone was like, give me your best memory of the last year. Like, give me your favorite memory of the last year. It could be personal, professional, whatever. Just like share it. Like, it was just a good way for everyone to get to know each other. But what's really surprising is like when you go around the table, it was almost always those really challenging projects that people would bring up. It was like those really hard, 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 hard things that sucked while you're going through them, you know, and then they get to the other side of them and then people would be like, yeah, I'm just like so proud we did that. And I'm so glad I did that. And I'm so proud of how we did that. And it was like, those are the best stories. But it was very surprising to me. Like, I would say 75% of the time, it was a memory of something that sucked. <laughs> was their like favorite memory of the last year? <laughs> 
which you wow. know says something about us as humans i think humans love conflict i'm always saying this and this is why you don't get any movies where nothing bad happens and we and and why reality tv is forced into corners of you know terrible situations that the producers set up i think humans love growth mm. and i think it's hard to find growth without some level of conflict you know whether it's within yourself or outside but we thrive on growth mm. it's 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 really hard to find fulfillment if you're not if you're not growing i think and if you got any advice looking back on your career on the things that most helped you to grow i mean you know you immediately go to people i i just think you know a lot of times it's others that kind of push us into out of our comfort zones so you know i gave the example of my wife gina she continues to do that for me today i've had a mentor for many years this guy david bell who um very similar story like built up a firm sold it ran the parent eventually ran interpublic group for a number of years like just kept moving up and he's probably one of the most humble, caring, empathetic leaders I've ever met. And just seeing him as like an example of someone that could be incredibly successful and still be kind and like, you know, giving and, you know, just a, a good person. Cause you, there's a lot of leaders out there you can look at are just like, kind of like, Oh, like, that person's an asshole. Like, you know, it's like, but you know, and maybe their brashness or boldness or ego got them to a certain place. But mm -hmm. when you can find someone like that, that's just like, no, they're just great. And it's, it's great to have those role models and, and, and someone you could call, like I, I would with him to sense check, like, am I thinking about this? Right. Is this the right thing to do? Like, is there other ways you should be thinking about it? So having those people, I think are, um, how'd you find those people? David, I found I, I was uh, I was at a networking event, and this was uh, around 2013. And somebody asked me who was on my advisory board at Solstice, and I said, "I don't, I don't have an advisory board. Like, who who's going to want to be on a you know 120 person firm, you know, software engineering firm's advisory board?" And they'd be like, and they said, "You know what? You'd be surprised. Like, let me." give you a challenge like think of like four people that you would love to have on your advisory board whether you know them or not and just call them and ask them and the worst they can say is no just call them and ask them and I went home that night and I wrote down four people some of whom I, I kind of knew and a couple that I had never even met and David Bell was one of them and I called all four of them and said look I'm looking to form an advisory board I don't really have a lot of cash, but I can you know, give you a small, small little piece of equity in the business. If you'd meet with me once a quarter, me and my executive team for a half day, once a quarter, and just help us figure out like how to get to the next level. And all of them said, yes, every single one of them. And they were great. They stayed, they, they stayed with us all the way through the sale, through the earnout. David is still on the public company board of Ken and Carta today. And it was like, you know, those little moments where someone just pushes you, like, mm. you know, just go ask. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, right. what, it's what so obvious. Yeah. It's so obvious. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, it was one thing I learned is like, I was just shit at asking for help. Yeah. Um, and I, I've learned through, through him that like, you know, asking for help is a bi-directional gift. I mean, you're getting a gift in whatever guidance or, you know, advice you're getting back, but you're also giving the, the person you're asking a gift because by them sh being able to share their experiences and wisdom with you, it's like, that's a really, that's a, that is a, a treat. That's like, that's how legacies form. That's, that's why I'm talking about David Bell right now for 10 minutes. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a gift. So I, I, I firmly believe that. And anytime someone reaches out to me, it's like, Hey, I know you don't know me, but like, I'd love to talk to you about this or that or the other thing. It's like, sure. So let's set up a time. I mean, it's not that hard, I guess. Once you, once you learn that you can to start asking. So you've fairly recently stepped away from the and Carter and left your legacy there. No longer the CEO. What's going on with you now? What, 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 what are the big plans in your future? Yeah. Um, 
So in last August, I handed the baton over to uh, Kelly Manthe, who has been with me for almost all, all the journey. So I'm like very, very excited and happy for her. And so I have started another firm called The Second Mountain. And my goal with The Second Mountain is to invest in and coach founders of early stage tech services companies. So one of the ways that we're, we're doing that and kind of getting the word out there is I've, I've put together a masterclass, which is basically going to be 10 episodes of like the top 10 things I've learned on how to scale a services firm. So for agency, you know, founders, tech services, founders, consultancies. So that is going on right now. If anyone wants to go um, subscribe at the secondmountain.io, um, so www.thesecondmountain.io. Or follow me on LinkedIn, and I'm posting those weekly. I think we're on Chapter 4's launching this week. Um, so anyone who's interested, I'd love, love for you to, to find it and share. I'm not charging anything for it. It's just, you know, again, one of, one of those ways, and I'm just trying to give back. Fantastic. And I always ask the following question. Any final words of wisdom? <laughs> final words of wisdom. You know, we, we've kind of touched on some principles of this. But I am a big believer in servant leadership, and I feel like it's one of those philosophies that you can practice regardless of what level art you are in the organization. I encourage people to read up on it, but the fundamental principle is this. Being a great leader is not about being good at your job. It's making other people great at theirs. And that is a principle that I have used to guide me throughout my entire career. It served me very well and served others very well. And I would just leave that as a, a passing thought. Well, I got to ask one follow-up question now. What book or books would you recommend people read? Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, is a great book that talks about the power of being a servant leader and bringing other people's up, bringing other people up alongside you as you continue to grow in your career. It's a great book. Jay, thank you so much. I always love talking to you. You've given us so much content. Thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it, Danny. Looking forward to continuing to listen. All right. See you later. All right. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for Pitch Guy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity and much more.